Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today as we encounter a saint who inspired the leaders of the Holy Roman Empire and shaped Christendom. Name Maurice, or Mauritius, life, died around 286 AD. Status, saint, feast, September 22nd. In the year 955, the German city of Augsburg was about to fall to the Hungarians. The Hungarians were pagans who fought in the eastern manner, as bowmen riding fast, light horses. Ever since Rome had encountered the Parthians, and then the Huns, Western Europeans had struggled to meet such tactics. Now, the Hungarians used their speed and mobility to raid and expand. Conquest had made them strong, and an impossibly huge army of 10,000 riders was at the gates of Augsburg. When a detachment of Hungarians attacked the city, the German defenders pushed out to meet them. They were soon spread out too far from the city, so that the Germans were being surrounded by Hungarians and cut down. The battle was turning against them. Perhaps it was Bishop Ulrich who first realized what was wrong. He rode out of the city with no arms or armor, dressed in white, to reorganize the defense. As arrows and spears whipped by him, the bishop and future saint, ordered the soldiers to fall back and guard the gates, where their numbers could work in their favor. The tide of battle turned again, and soon the Hungarian commander was killed. The invaders disengaged. Augsburg would survive another day. If King Otto could make it to their defense in time, if his smaller army could even dent the Hungarian advance, the city might still have a chance. It would be down to the king and the prayers of his patron saint, St. Maurice. The Hungarians weren't worried. They boasted that Otto's arrival would make the capture of Augsburg faster, for when they had killed the king, the city would easily fall. That night, as the Christians waited nervously to learn their fates, the meteor shower that Christians knew as the Tears of St. Lawrence wept from the dark sky. King Otto was, in fact, coming to the defense of Augsburg. It was not going well. He had been bogged down in hard fighting with the pagan Slavs. Now he was hurrying to get there, with his baggage train out behind his main force. As Otto's soldiers passed through a wooded area, the nimble Hungarians circled around to hit the baggage train, looting it until Otto's men could drive them away. Desperate, short on supplies, Not sure there was a way home, 
the German army faced the larger Hungarian force at Lechfeld. As the Germans faced the riders from the east, King Otto knew that the fate of his kingdom hung in the balance. He drew out his prized possession. It was the Spear of Longinus, the spear that had pierced the side of Christ as he hung on the cross. And it had been brought into the lands of the Saxons, so they said, a very, very long time ago, by Otto's patron saint, and the patron saint of Otto's father before him, Saint Maurice. Maurice, or Mauritius, had come to Europe almost seven centuries earlier. Like King Otto, Maurice was a leader of men. In Maurice's case, those men were legionaries in the Roman Empire. In a more stable time, legions were commanded by Roman aristocrats who served in the military and then returned to civilian life. But Maurice was living during the turbulent years we call the crisis of the third century. The Roman Empire had grown too big, too corrupt, too bureaucratic, and it was falling apart. Now, there needed to be permanent military commanders who knew their areas and could react quickly. Maurice was such a commander, operating on the southern fringe of the Roman Empire. People didn't have much hope that the empire would last much longer. But then, in 284, Diocletian had become emperor. Unlike the men who had come before him, Diocletian could see a way out of the crisis. He fixed the army and the administration. He also realized that he needed help, and he found it in Maximian, whom Diocletian took as co-emperor. Where Diocletian was the brain of the empire, Maximian was the brawn, a man who liked to be on the front lines himself. Unfortunately, one of the problems that Diocletian thought he saw in the empire came from Eastern religions. He set about stamping out the Manichaeans and soon the Christians. Diocletian and Maximian unleashed some of the most bloody persecutions that the church has ever endured. One area that was particularly hard hit during the crisis of the 3rd century was Gaul. It had become overrun with the bandit groups that became known as Bagodai. Once upon a time, this sort of symptom would have been easier to classify. It was not unknown for slaves to rise up in rebellion. It was also not unknown for patriotic locals to revolt against the Roman Empire and fight for independence. And there were always rough men who turned to banditry. In the crisis of the 3rd century, the Bagadai were all of these things at once. And even worse, their ranks were swelled by trained soldiers who had deserted the Roman legions. The Bagadai were another thing that Diocletian wanted taken care of. It was just the moment to bring out a bruiser like his co-emperor, Maximian. So Maximian marched to Octodurum, modern Martigny in Switzerland, and camped there while summoning legions from around the empire. And so it was that Maurice's legion received the summons at their base in southern Egypt, in the city called the Thebade, taking its name from the city of Thebes. In the territory of the so-called Theban legion, settlements hugged the Nile as it wended deeper into Africa. 
The Nile supported Egyptian agriculture, and, to a large extent, that agriculture supported the Roman Empire. Unnoticed by the authorities, at least at first, something else was happening in Roman Egypt. Christians were leaving the world behind to live in communities and caves in the desert. They went to the least hospitable places they could find and began to develop the Christian concept of monasticism. To those around them, they were teachers and inspirations. As one traveler said, It is clear to all those who dwell there that through them the world is kept in being, and that through them, too, human life is preserved and honored by God. The Desert Fathers, as they became known, made an impression on everyone who lived nearby, even the soldiers. We have a story of a soldier asking one of the Desert Fathers the kind of general question you pretend to be asking for a friend when you want to discuss your own fears. The soldier asked the Desert Father whether it was possible for a man to repent. He wanted to know if God would take him back after he had done evil things. It wasn't an obvious question. If the soldier had asked a pagan priest, the answer would have been no. The Desert Father answered the question with another question. If your cloak is torn, do you throw it away? Soldiers were notoriously short on supplies, and so the answer was obvious. No, I mend it and use it again. The Desert Father nodded. If you are so careful about your cloak, will not God be equally careful about his creature? Perhaps the soldier who had asked the question was a member of the Theban Legion. Perhaps it was Maurice himself. We don't know, but we do know that the Theban Legion had a secret. They were Christians. Maurice, his senior officers, and the men under his command had converted. Maurice would have been wealthy and influential enough to have acquired a relic, perhaps even the Spear of Longinus. Now, out on the border of the empire, an entire legion could quietly convert. But now, the Theban legion would be working closely with the emperor himself. They would have to be very careful. Maximian ended up putting the Thebans to the test without even meaning to. He wanted the legions to enforce imperial anti-Christian policy as they moved through Gaul to the rally point. The Theban legion was not willing to persecute Christians. And so, as they arrived, reports reached Maximian that nothing had been done on their route. This is the point in the story at which Maurice explained himself to the emperor. Our earliest source, the bishop and future saint Eucurius, gives us the gist of what was said, and these words become a speech in the Golden Legend, a heavily embellished 13th century collection of saints' stories. There, Maurice tells Maximian, We are your soldiers, Emperor, and we have taken arms to defend the Commonwealth. There is no treason in us, no fear, but we will not betray the faith of Christ. Maurice was saying what Christians had been trying to explain for more than a century. They weren't rebels. They weren't preparing to overthrow the government. But Christians owed a higher loyalty to God. The accounts of what happened next 
assume that Maurice and his men were eager for martyrdom. I think that's true, but still, I don't think Maurice was being unduly provocative. He and his men had marched across Europe to fight the Bagadai. In a way, Maurice and the Bagadai were both facing the fact that the Roman Empire was intellectually and morally bankrupt. The Bagadai represented one sort of answer. They would rebel and take the law into their own hands. Maurice and his men represented another answer. They would stand and do their duty, but that duty would include a moral dimension, a reverence toward God. Maximian could work with men like Maurice. He couldn't work with a Bagadai. It was a somewhat subtle point, and if Maurice had been addressing Diocletian, the emperor might have stopped to consider it. Unfortunately, Maurice was dealing with Maximian. It sounded like insubordination to him. So he punished the Theban legions with one of the most brutal punishments available to Roman leaders, decimation. The legionaries would draw straws. In every ten straws, one would be shorter than the others. The legionary who drew the short straw would die. After they had watched a tenth of their comrades die, Maximian expected the Theban legion to be pacified. But to his immense rage, they weren't. The golden legend has the legion's standard-bearer jumping up to welcome martyrdom. So Maximian ordered the process to be repeated. The Theban legion was decimated again. And again, after they had watched more of their comrades die, they explained to the emperor that they were ready to serve him as Christians, or to die as Christians. There was no other choice. Maximian responded by sending the rest of his army to encircle the small alpine valley where the Theban legion was camped. Roman soldiers came from all directions, massacring their fellows. Legend has it that many escaped. They spread through Gaul, preaching and making converts, often giving their names to the villages and places they touched. Maurice, though, died there in the valley with his men. If he was carrying the spear of Longinus, we don't know what happened to it. It vanishes into the mists of history for a time. The fact that Maximian had massacred his own soldiers shocked everyone. The Christians in Gaul were impressed that these holy men had marched out and died as martyrs. Soon, the place where they had been killed was venerated. As the persecutions ended, a monastery sprang up on that spot. St. Maurice and his courageous officers in the Theban Legion became patron saints for Christian warriors throughout Europe. The Golden Legend has plenty to say about the miracles of the Theban Legion. In one beautiful story, a mother sends her son to become a monk, but the boy dies young in the monastery. His mother is heartbroken. Then, One night, she dreams of St. Maurice, who tells her, Do not think of him as being dead. Know that he is living with us. If you want proof of this, come to the service of Matins tomorrow and every day, and you will hear his voice among the voices of the monks as they chant the psalms. 
She can never see her son again, but when she attends the morning service, there is his voice faintly mingled in with the other singers. Not all the miracles in the golden legend tug at the heartstrings. There's also the tale of the construction of a church for one of the members of the Theban Legion. As it turns out, one of the builders is a pagan. While the Christian workers are at church on Sunday, the pagan builder decides he'll get some work done. The Theban Legion is not amused, and they show up in force and deliver a rather unsaintly beatdown to the rogue builder. Afterward, they tell him to clear out and go to church. By the time the German king, Henry, father of Otto, acquired the Spear of Longinus, St. Maurice was already venerated across Europe. Otto embraced the symbolism and the patronage of St. Maurice even more than his father had. Otto wasn't stupid. He, He was aware that there were other artifacts that were being presented as the Spear of Longinus. But this one was supposed to have come from his great patron, St. Maurice. It was doubly significant to him. This was the weapon that King Otto held high as he faced the Hungarian horde at Lechfeld in August of 955. His baggage train had already been raided, and his men on either wing were struggling with the Hungarians. Only attack was left. And so Otto rode out, leading the picked men of his royal guard in a thunderous charge into the surprised Hungarians. Otto's cavalry charge smashed the Hungarian army. Their structure broke and the army split apart. The Hungarians began to run, the Germans in pursuit. Otto's victory resounded through Europe. It brought an end to the time of the Eastern Raider securing the borders of Europe for centuries. It brought Otto so much prestige that soon after, Otto united much of Europe, forming a solid front against the pagan lands in the east and becoming the Holy Roman Emperor. Some historians think that Otto's lifelong struggle with pagans on the borders is the key to Otto's veneration of St. Maurice. After all, St. Maurice was killed by pagans, and Otto was fighting pagans. But I think this misses a detail in the story of the great warrior saint. St. Maurice was willing to be killed by pagans. He wasn't afraid to die. But he was also not afraid to live as a soldier, and work, and fight, and kill to protect order and civilization. If things had gone differently with the Emperor Maximian, If the emperor had understood the potential of men like St. Maurice, then Maurice would have been a builder rather than a martyr. And so, I think, in Otto, St. Maurice had finally found an emperor who understood. With Maurice's support, as an example for his men and for him, and also as an intercessor with God, the emperor we remember as Otto the Great brought peace and order to his lands. He protected the church from her enemies, and under his leadership, Northern Europe bloomed in the period we remember as the Ottonian Renaissance. Along with his great patron, Otto began to build the foundations 
of medieval Christendom.